They were there when history was made. Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer! The Sports Rackham Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports and Tours, the show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. Today, we continue our conversation with Tom Callahan, the author of Gods at Play. Tom has seen both the very best athletes and the very best writers as well. If you like sports, you know our guest now. His name's Tom Callahan, former senior writer at Time Magazine, sports columnist over at the Washington Post, and he's written a number of great books. One of my favorites was Johnny U. He's got an incredible new book out that we're going to talk about today, Gods at Play, an eyewitness account of great moments in American sports. Well, Tom, there isn't much you haven't seen going like from about the mid-20th century on in terms of the world of sports, yet when you started... You were called kind of an accidental sports writer. How did you get that first job, and what made you think, like, wow, this might be a business I'd like? Well, I was a senior at a little little college in Maryland, Mount St. Mary's College, and I got halfway through uh, my senior year and wondered what an English major does to make a living. I thought I wanted to write, so I hitchhiked into Baltimore and walked into the evening sun and asked for the city editor. And he uh, talked to me for a while, passed me to another editor who passed me to another editor, and I ended up across the desk from Bill Tanton, the sports editor. And we talked about my time around sports, which wasn't very notable, and I'd made most of the teams, but few of the plays. But I'd just been in, Ak- in Akron, uh, Ohio. Mount St. Mary's was playing in, the, in a uh, small college regional tournament that involved uh, Winston-Salem and their star Earl Monroe. So I got to talking with Tanton about Earl Monroe, and he said, have you seen the Bullets much, uh, Tom? I said, a little. He said, have you watched Don Ole? I said, Bill, if the Bullets had this guy, Don Ole wouldn't be playing. And and I could tell he took some slight offense. Here's this punk kid from a jerkwater school <laughs> telling me that somebody I never heard of is better than Don Ole. A little while later, uh, at the draft, the Bullets lost a flip of the coin to the Pistons. The Pistons took Jimmy Walker of Providence, and the Bullets took Earl Monroe. And Bill Tanton, the sports editor, walked up to uh, Gene Shu, the Bullets coach, and said, uh, I had a kid in my office the other day saying Monroe was the best player in the country. And Shu said, I think he might be. Tanton called me at Mount St. Mary's, paged me in the hallway, said, I don't know where I'm going to put you, but you got a job. <laughs> that's great. So that's like the worst way anybody ever became a sports writer. This is 1967. I used to tell my great old friend Shirley Povich, he got his job with the Washington Post by caddying for the owner of the Washington <laughs> Post. He, he figured 
Ned McLean figured that Shirley was a hell of a caddy, never lost a golf ball, so it was only logical to make him the boy sports editor of the Washington Post. Well, <laughs> we used to tell each other we'd never get, even get a job. You know, we'd never even get an interview to, to any paper today. But, yeah, that's how I... That's how I kind of accidentally became a sports writer. That Earl Monroe turned out to be the great player that you predicted, too. Was it kind of fun watching his career? And uh... Yeah, I knew him. Of course, he takes all the credit for my career because he knows that story, <laughs> and he's got it all mixed up wrong. I was actually um, with the team, but I wasn't on the team. The coach from Mount St. Mary's, great old guy named Jim, Jim Phelan, um, who's in his 90s, he offered me a ticket to go to Akron if I would... Uh, serve as cannon fodder you know i could get a rebound but uh, sweet guy he was uh, i'll tell you what if you saw him on a small college floor you wouldn't believe it they had two games that weekend they beat akron and they beat baldwin wallace and uh, he scored 50 points both nights yeah he was really an incredible player and sometimes when you think of russell and chamberlain and all those people he sometimes gets forgotten and he really shouldn't be he was a great ball player he was i wouldn't put him uh, y- y- you know it's hard to put. It's hard to compare anybody, I guess, to Russell Chamberlain of that era. I, I knew both those guys pretty well. Chamberlain better than Russell because Chamberlain was an easier guy to know. Russell was a hard guy to crack. Russell was in a car once with with uh, Frank DeFord, my friend and great sports writer for the Sports Illustrated. And Frank uh, Frank was driving with Bill, and uh, all of a sudden Russell said. Too bad we can't be friends. And Frank said, what are you talking about, Bill? I thought we were friends. He said, oh, no, we can be friendly, but we can't be friends. You know, and that's, he was a hard nut to crack, at least for me he was. But oh, Chamberlain yeah. was, a, was a sweetheart. You know, I mean, he, 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 had, he had his issues, of course. He didn't really understand basketball. He would start the season and say, I'm going to score point, more points than anybody ever did and do it. He <laughs> averaged 50 a night. And then he'd get tired of hearing what a gunner he is, so he said, I'm going to get more assists than anybody who ever did, and he did it. He just didn't grasp that the game was of all these elements. And he also didn't, it wasn't important to him to be a winner. You know, it was more important to him not to be an ogre. You know, he had grown up in Philadelphia. He had two parents who were home. He was taught to behave. You know, he was, he was a very unusual black guy, a Catholic, you know, and uh, but he... He only won two championships because he didn't force the issue. You know, of all his great records, the the most profound one is he never fouled out of an NBA game because once he had four fouls, he quit playing. He stopped. It was maddening, but... um, Well, yeah, I mean, he was so great, and and you bring up a good point because... I was going to ask you if you thought he achieved all he could, and I guess statistically he did, but not necessarily in terms of uh, success in rings and that kind of thing. No, he, he. One year they were the defending champions in L.A., and the year before they had, you know, thirty-three straight victories. They really cut a swath through the league. Now they're now they're in the finals with the Knicks again, and um, uh, the Knicks are leading the series, and they're at the sixth game in L.A. And most of the sports writers are figuring that um, the Lakers would win game six and lose game seven in New York. But anyway, I'm there having a cup of coffee at the fabulous forum that morning, and, and Wilt sticks his head in the door and says, anybody who, has, who owes me money, have it here tonight. And I thought, <laughs> this series is over. Yeah. And, and he, bar- you know, he barely showed up for the sixth game. And, and not five minutes afterwards, 
he handed me a little notebook and a pen and said, put your number down there. My volleyball team is touring in the offseason. <laughs> Five minutes after he lost the championship. There, there were things missing about him. I was sitting with Pat Riley uh, in, in Tucker Fredrickson's New York Saloon years ago, and we were talking about why, why Wilt only won two. And, of course, Riley played on that team with him. And Riley said, well, don't leave out all those little blonde women and pigtails. He had a type, Kim Novak's, including the real Kim Novak. Wow. Yeah. And at, he, that, he, at that time, that was, that was almost unheard of, right? It, 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 was, it was. You know, I mean, Wilt, Wilt was a, but he was a nice guy. He was a good guy. When he, when he built his fabulous house, he called it Ursa Major, you know, the Big Dipper. Mm-hmm. Uh, oddly enough, Chamberlain despised the nickname Wilt the Stilt, but he loved the nickname the Big Dipper. And uh, he, D- Dipper was written on, all, on the cuffs of all of his shirts. And, uh, but he, he invited me to a tour his grand house that he had built. It was amazing. <laughs> During the tour, he says to a bunch of us, we were all the kind of like the nobodies. The second wave would, of the, would be the famous people. But the nobodies, we're, we're walking around and we're seeing these incredible showers and <laughs> incredible furniture, you know. And you know, I'm 6'2", 200 and some pounds, you know. And he, he said, he said I, I was worried that my, my friend Bill Shoemaker, the jockey, might feel like he's, he's you know, it's, <laughs> he, he's with the giant in the, in the beanstalk. He said, I think the architect did a real good job of that. And I thought to myself, did he? You know, I felt like I was a field mouse, you know, and, and I'm, I'm wondering how, how many, how many wolves noses, you know, oh, went yeah. into that bread spread over his bed. He had a bed, he had a bed that looked like a hockey field and, a, and a, 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 over his head, you, he could open the roof to look at the stars. Yeah, I mean, he got in a, a lot of hot water when he was talking about how many conquests he had. But it was a guy, another way of looking at it is, boy, did he enjoy his life. I mean, he was a celebrity, and he loved it. Yeah, you know, he could be generous. You know, I, I mean, I, I saw him in generous situations, but he had a chip on his shoulder, of course. He, he, he went to the Montreal Olympic Games. I was there with Red Smith and Jack Murphy, and... And, and Wilt was mad that Nadia Comaneci was the big star. He said, "He said you guys always go for the pixie. You know, it's always the smallest person. You know, you know. I mean, I mean, he he, he never changed. But uh, and he could, and of course he was the strongest man who ever lived. Alex Hannum. I don't know. I don't know whether you remember him. The coach. Big ball. Yeah. <laughs> buck, you know, buckskin coach, six seven, tough guy. He coached Wilt, and he once said, if you're not going to respect me as a coach, you're going to respect me as a man. And they went into a men's room, and Wilt knocked him out. Oh, jeez. And, and I, I tried to talk to Alex about this once. He wouldn't talk about it. But I mentioned it to, I mentioned it to Wilt, and Wilt said, uh, Alex is a loquacious man. And, and, you know, they ended up kind of friends. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. one, one of the guys, one of the great old players on the on, on a team I covered in Cincinnati when I was covering the Cincinnati Royals was jumping Johnny Green, a guy from Michigan State. You know, one of the world's noblemen, just a lovely guy. Man, could he get lift up off the floor? And I was with Wilt once. I mentioned Johnny Green, and Chamberlain said to me, "Someday, jumping Johnny Green's going to go up, 
and nothing's going to come down but sneaker laces. I think of when I think of Wild, I think of things like that. I remember a couple things. Number one, that fight with Ali, based on what you're talking about, was he serious at all about that? Because I, I remember he, he, that. He, he was. Uh, he, Ali would have gone inside and, and killed him. Yeah. He would have gone inside and hurt him. But that's that was part of his ego, you know. When Ali, when that that whole thing came up, Angelo Dundee got up on a chair and said and invited Ali to hit him in the head. And and Muhammad thought, uh oh, let's 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 have let's have him fight Doug Jones first. You know, he wanted to get <laughs> yeah. him another fight. Well, Chamberlain, went, he was only going to fight Ali. He wasn't going to fight anybody else. So the, the 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 thing went away. But I'm sure Wilt, because he was such a wonderful athlete, great track man. You know, uh, he, he, he really could do everything, and he knew every detail of sport. You know, he knew more about sports than anybody I ever, I ever met. He, he could be rough. Do you remember Bob Ferry, the sure. center plate? He, he was, ended up general manager of the Bullets. He was a backup center. He was a Billiken. He was from St. Louis. Wilt got mad at him once during a game and chased him into the stands. <laughs> it was at the Civic Center in Baltimore, and Wes Unsel has a film of this. He, he, the camera's like panning the stands, and all of a sudden you see Ferry stick his head out, you know, from <laughs> yeah. from behind a bunch of people, and and and, and Wes, he he had brought me home to show me this, and Wes just roared, you know. <laughs> well, Chamberlain and Russell both were really kind of intelligent guys, but like you say, I remember when Russell was coaching the Sacramento Kings, and I got to know him a little there, mm-hmm. and it was a guy that would only give you so much. You always felt like you you you, you took what, what he'd give you, and that was it. He was he wasn't going to open up to you. I forgave him completely because of the way he was treated in Boston, in racist Boston. He came home one night. Someone had broken into his house and gone to the bathroom in his bed. Boston Celtics never sold out. The 13 years he was there and won 11 championships, they never sold out. They didn't sell out till Bird got there. It's incredible. You know, I mean, Bo- I mean, Boston is a is a is a town that nobody crosses anybody else's barriers. You know, and I, I understood. I tried. I couldn't crack Russell. I sat with him a couple of times to try and get him to talk. He'd, he'd answer yes, no. You know, but but I, you know, I forgave him because 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 of the circumstance and the players who played with him. Of course, they were all in awe of him. I, I knew yeah. Ziggy, just very Zigfried, pretty well. He won five titles there as a guard. He was he was an Ohio State guy. He played with Havlicek, and and Ziggy told me. When Russell was the coach, he ended up being the first black coach in any major sport, you know. And he won the last final two of his eleven championships as the player coach of the Celtics. And Siegfried told me he said he he it practiced when he was the coach. He hardly said a word. He'd sit there and read the newspaper. He said, and then and then he'd be the last guy to to the uh, garden, you know, before yeah. the game. And he, and, and he he said you could smell the woman on his beard, wow. you know. And, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and he said, but we, you know we we'd fall behind, and then he called timeout always, and he'd say, okay, cut the cut the cut this up, let's let's go win this game, and we would. And, and Siegfried told me he said, I won five championships rings with him, all of them because of him, but I can't say I knew him. 
can't say he knew him, you know. <laughs> he wow. play, played for him and with him, but didn't know him. Well, you know, when you talk about coaches in all sports, and you've seen them all, I always wonder if guys like him, like Frank Robinson, uh, maybe even Ted Williams, where they're just great players, kind of have a hard time with dealing with it. Whereas guys like Billy Martin, who wasn't a great player, you're right. Can, can, is there something to that? It absolutely is. A guy like Earl Weaver had a cup of coffee in the big leagues, you know. He looked around and thought, boy, couldn't these guys play? Ted Williams looked around and thought, nobody can play here. Ted Williams literally said to me once in Washington, he said, how did Eddie Brinkman ever get to the big leagues? And I said, Ted, he's your best player. (laughs) Well, you know, Cousy was that way. I covered that team that Cousy coached. And Cousy would look out on the floor and he'd think, can't anybody throw a pass? And I'd say, Bob, you're the only guy who ever threw that pass. Right. You know, it, 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 it was it was better to be Sparky Anderson. You know, who played he had the rarest career of all, one full season in the big leagues. Walter Olson had one at bat in the big leagues, struck out. One at bat, one. <laughs> but Sparky had a whole season in Philadelphia on a terrible Phillies team where he was uh, he was the second baseman. And he you know, hit two twelve, and you know he had yeah. he had almost no RBIs. You know, it, Joe Morgan used to say that's why Sparky hates pitchers because he couldn't hit them. But but the, those guys who looked around and thought, man, has there ever been a catcher like Johnny Bench? You know, or you know, yeah. they, they, they were the Cooperstown Reds to Sparky. You think, man, look at this guy, look at that guy. Well, that's that's who you want to be, the manager. You don't want the world's greatest player. You don't want Ted Williams. Although the funny thing is, I got along with Williams, and he didn't like sports writers. Now, why do you think that was? Because I remember that. He was kind of grumpy when it came to sports writers, oh, broadcasters, man. and what have you. We remember how the, the, the great old players would come back at spring training in uniform. Koufax would be in 32, and Al Kaline would be in number six. And Williams would come back to Winter Haven for the Red Sox, but he never got dressed again. You know, He, didn't, he never yeah. suited up. He'd be sitting there in a, in a real roomy fishing shirt, and, and he did, wouldn't even talk to the local writers. But I, for some reason, got along with him, and I think the main reason was is, is I couldn't interview him. I, you know, I don't think anybody could interview him, but I certainly, yeah, certainly I couldn't. He interviewed you, you know. So I'd see him every year, and we'd sit off in this cage while the games are going off, and, and he would say things, things to me like, uh, you're from Baltimore, right? <laughs> I'd say, uh, yeah, Rich, uh, I was born in Chicago, but I you know, went to school in Baltimore. He said, so you must have played lacrosse instead of baseball. And I said, yeah, after Little League Baseball, everybody played lacrosse. He said, do you, do, do you know Unitas? I'd say, a little. <laughs> yeah. say, he said, let me ask you, if Unitas is standing over the center and the stadium bursts into flames, what does he do? I said, he runs the play. <laughs> and William said, "William said that's God given." And then he'd and then he'd say to me, "Good to see you again, Tommy. Next year we'll talk about Chicago." <laughs> he, he was like in charge of everything. That has to feel good, right? Where you know that you're getting a, a, something from him that really nobody else is, or a very few. Yeah, I people. don't even know why. You, you know, things. It's such an accident. This book I've just written is full of little memories that have nothing to do with the major happening or the score or anything, you know, little tiny memories that are unique to me. Uh, nothing in this book is something I heard. It's all st- 
stuff I was standing there for, and a lot of that was an accident. You know, like I was standing with Clemente at his final locker, and of course we didn't know it was fi- his final locker. But I'm only there because the pennant was won on, a, of all things, a wild pitch, and all the writers went with the winners in the Cincinnati side, and so I had Clemente completely to myself. I'm just trying to avoid a champagne bath in the Reds' locker room. That's why I'm with Clemente. But we sat and I had, you know, his last locker. And that's no credit to me. It's just a complete accident. If you indulge me, a little story that's typical of, of gods of play. Mm-hmm. The 72 World Series opened in Cincinnati. Before the second game, Jackie Robinson was on the field. He was 53 looked 73, white-headed, virtually blind from diabetes. Nine days later, he dropped dead. All the black players on the A's and the Reds, of course, they surrounded him on the field, and they, they just wanted to touch him. And uh, everybody but Joe Morgan, the second baseman, and uh, he's playing catch on the side. I got kind of fascinated watching him. So now the message comes on the PA system for the non-uniform personnel to get off the field. And Morgan walks up behind Robinson, and he doesn't say, this is Joe Morgan. He says simply in a voice so low, I could barely hear him, thank you. Robinson says, you're welcome, without even turning around. I follow Jackie as he goes into the Reds' dugout. They let him up the ramp into into the clubhouse where he ran into Jim Murray of the L.A. Times. And Murray said, Jackie, it's Jim Murray. And Jackie said, oh, Jim, oh, Jim, I wish I could see you again. And Murray said, no, Jackie, I wish we could see you again. Well, I can't tell you the score of the game that day. We will be back with the author of Gods at Play, Tom Callahan, in just a moment. You're listening to Sports and Tours with Stephen Maggi. If you like sports, you'll love the Sports Tours. Each week, host Stephen Maggi sits down with someone who has an insider perspective on players, teams, games, or events from the world of sports. Who are these folks? People who were there and know how to weave their memories and observations into stories you'll want to hear. Listen each week on Vegas Never Sleeps, then visit the Sports Tours page on VegasNeverSleeps.com. Welcome back to Sports Rock on Tours. You are listening to Tom Callahan, author of Gods at Play, a book that features incredible stories about great sports legends. Talk about Red Smith. I mean, you mentioned Jim Murray, a great writer. Red Smith, when you think sports writers and so forth, uh, there was nobody like him. When you see somebody like that, do you try to just talk to them, pick up some of what they do and how they do it? You know, in those days, when I first came into the business, Sports riders traveled in pairs, like horse races, 101A. I was Red's last best friend, just accidentally, because I'd worked for Jack Murphy, and Murphy was his second to the last best friend. Murphy died young, 57. So Murphy and I always stayed with Red in New Canaan, Connecticut, when we were at a New York event. The last years of Red Smith, and we hung around at the Derby every year. Red loved the horse racing. So, so I got to know him so well. And in, in the latter years, he, when he was losing his, his, you know, his ability to get around as much, he would say to me, be my legs, will you? 
you know, take notes. And, uh, and uh, like I can remember at Yankee Stadium, Reggie Jackson hit three home runs off three first deliveries from three different Dodger pitchers to win the World Series. And I went down, and, and oftentimes, and Red would start his column in the press box. I'd go up to the press box with a, you know, some notes or whatever, and, and most of the time Red would say, I'm okay, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm rich, I'm rich, meaning <laughs> leave me alone. You know, <laughs> you know he's, yeah. he's into his column. And I said to him, Red, i got to stop you. I dropped by Steve Garvey's locker in the Dodger clubhouse, and um, Garvey told me the third time Reggie rounded first base, when I was sure nobody was looking, I applauded into my glove. <laughs> and that was Red's punchline the next day, and mine. I, I had never heard that story either, but I could see Garvey being the type of guy. I think it's because... You're fighting it as hard as you can, but at the same time, you realize you're seeing something really special, and you kind of want to acknowledge it. Yeah, there, 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 there aren't too many who are smart enough to do that, but he was one. Has the fan-athlete connection, has that kind of changed over the years in the sense of now teams move? You know, At that time, the stuff you're talking about, those teams stayed in place pretty much. Now you got more movement. You mentioned Jack Murphy, and I'm thinking, well, that stadium's named after him in San Diego, and now it's empty. Uh, they're going to tear it down. Do you notice like a, a difference that way? And then plus there's so much money in sports now that it's going to just naturally take that away. Yeah, well, the, 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 the biggest difference is the money. Even when I showed up, 67, there wasn't much difference between the money that the sports writers were making and the players were making. You know, John Unitas' first salary was $5,000. And uh, he, he, you know, he went over to Alan Amici's house and put the linoleum in, in his kitchen. And uh, it, it was all different. All those old gentlemen who used to write sports who were there when I arrived, most of them wearing fedoras, you know, all coats and ties. You'd never imagine them in these food fights on television with sports writers today. I always challenge people to look back. I grew up an Oakland Raider fan, so I used to tell people, hey, look at the 1976 or any of those games with Pittsburgh, and you watch them then. You watch it now, and it wasn't a more entertaining game. It might The athletes might not be as good, but the games yeah. were... There were battles there. Well, well, you know, Al Davis spoke at Jack Murphy's funeral, and he told and he told a great story because some of the other speakers, like Archie Moore, was there and Don Coriel, San Diego guys, you know. And um, when it came Al's turn, I won't try and duplicate his voice, but you know it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he, he, when it came his turn, he said, "We're crying too much," especially Don Coriel. He blubbered through his whole speech. He said, "I want to tell a story I can remember Jack laughing at." And, he, and, and Al noticed Baron Hilton sitting in the audience, you know, Conrad Hilton's son, who Jack Murphy talked in a move in the Los Angeles Chargers to San Diego, you know, in the old AFL. And Al said, in those days, Baron's brother, Nicky, and I used to go to Qantas meetings, you know, in Rotary Clubs to talk up the old AFL. And he said, Nick, he loved it, except he hated the inevitable way he was introduced as Elizabeth Taylor's first husband. And he, he said, but finally, a, a guy got up and said, now I'd like to introduce a man who once made $100,000 in the baseball business, Nicky Hilton. And Hilton ran to the front 
to the stage and said, this is the, that's the greatest introduction I've ever received, and it's correct in every particular, except it wasn't baseball, it was football. It wasn't $100,000, it was a million dollars. It wasn't made, it was lost. And it wasn't me, it was my brother. Yeah. And, and everybody in the church laughed. And I thought, God bless you, Al Davis. He just was an interesting yeah. guy to talk to. Oh yeah, he was he, he was he, he was a little crazy, but he was he, again he was a sweet guy at essence. I can remember a Jack Murphy column on him, and I, me- I remember the punchline of, of Jack's column. He uh, he was talking about Al. He said he, he walked away with a look of mischief, <laughs> and uh, that's that's what I, that's what I think of Al too. He was a mischievous guy, but at heart a good guy. He fought for the AFL probably harder than anybody out there. Yeah, he didn't want to. See, he didn't want to merge. He had. He he wanted to continue the war, and he expected to be the commissioner. And, and I, for our purposes, for writers' purposes, he was very accessible. I could get him on the phone. And, and Jerry McGee was the football writer in San Diego, and a wonderful one. And and you know he he I'd, I'd call him and say, hey, where, where 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 can I get Al? And he'd say, here, here here's his number. You know, and, and he'd uh, answer. <laughs> he'd, he'd answer, and he'd tell you know, and he'd he'd ask questions of you too. He once called me up and said, because I was writing in Washington then, and he said, he said, you know, Gary Pomeranz, don't you? He was a Washington Post. He was a kid at the Washington Post, and I said, yeah. He said, should I talk to him? <laughs> I said, yeah, he's worth talking to. He's a good he's a good guy. He won't betray you, you know. Uh, and he said, "Okay, I just wanted to. I wanted. I wanted to hear from somebody else that he was okay." okay well, you <laughs> that, know, well, that's that's all gone now. Well, you know, he was always called a genius. One of those things. I want to ask you about two other Call guys. Himself a genius. Yeah, right. Exactly. There was two other guys that were always referred to as genius, and I kind of want to get your take. Paul Brown was he a genius? Because I know what he set up there was revolutionary when he came into the league way back when. Well, when 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 I got to Cincinnati, he was still the coach of the Bengals. And uh, to me, he was like the inventor of pro football. You know, he, he's the guy who put the classroom in pro football. He, he thought of specialty coaches. You know, he thought of everything. There, there were years, he told me, when he made more money from his patent on the face mask than he did anything else. He did that. He got tired of explaining to wives and mothers, you know, the, the gaps in their husbands' and children's smiles, you know. But he, he was... Yeah. He was an amazing character, cold. You know, he once, he, he, when he was a high school coach in Massillon in Ohio, he was also an English teacher. And he said to me once in that icy way of his, I can define a gerund, can you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, a, a verb that acts like a noun, kind of like a football coach who acts like a sports writer. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, we, we were great adversaries. He, 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 we were once standing on a practice field, and his son, Mike, who now runs the team, was across the field throwing perfect spirals to an end named Chip Myers. Yeah. And I said to Paul, I said, you know, you know Mike can th- pass a little bit. He said, oh, he was a good quarterback at Dartmouth. He said, uh, he was about as good as what we had in Cleveland at the time, Milt Plum. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he said, in fact, there were, there were teams that were thinking of taking a flyer in the draft on Mike. But that wasn't in my plans. He was going to be the lawyer. And I, when I heard that some were interested in Mike, I put the word out, if you don't, we won't pass it on. And I said to him, uh, let me get this straight. You never saw anybody who wanted to be a pro football player better than your son, so you made sure he couldn't. Wow. And he didn't talk to me the rest of that year. 
Yeah, because you called him on it. How did he get along with his assistant coaches? I think he'd be a tough boss. Well, he, 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 the funny thing is, there was kind of a myth that all his assistant coaches were peripherating his coaches throughout the league. It was his players. It was Don Shula and Chuck Noll, you know, that, that were, were doing that. His assistants, if they ever left him, he never talked to them again. Weeb Eubank, for instance. And, and Bill Walsh. When Bill, Bill Walsh was an assistant when I was there. And, you know, Walsh, a couple of days after Paul announced he was retiring as coach and staying as GM and naming, he named Bill Johnson, his, his oldest aide, as, as his replacement. Of course, Walsh, Walsh felt that Brown was bad-mouthing him throughout the league. That he, he told me, he said, I've, I've had people come looking for me, but he always talks me down. So, so he called me once. It was at the day I was at the Rose Bowl, and I just came home. So it was the day after the second day of the year, and uh, he said, "Can I take you into my confidence?" I said, "Sure." He said, "Lou Holtz is in New York today, talking to Jim Kensel about the Jets' vacant job." Jim Kensel was an old sports writer who had ended up the GM of the Jets. He said, "Would you mind calling Kensel and vouching for me? I think in the media center it might help." Because I'm gonna, tr- I'm trying for that job, and and I, and I said, Bill, if if Kensel somehow found out we hated each other, that might help you. If he found out you told me that Holtz was in town, that would eliminate you. And 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 Walsh said, this just shows you how far gone I am. He accepted, and he told me in that f- phone conversation, he said, he said, I'm gonna, I've been offered an assistant head coach's job in, by Tommy Prothrow in San Diego, and he said. Um, but I'm, as I say, I still have this kind of hope. And I said, Bill, now it's going to take all my restraint not to call Dave Anderson and tell him about Holtz and not to call Jerry McGee and tell him about you. you know. And, uh, but anyway, anyway, Bill told me much later that he happened to be in Prothrow's office when Prothrow got a call from Paul Brown. And he, put, he, he motioned for Bill Walsh to get on the extension, which Brown never knew. And he said, Walsh said, he, he badmouthed me completely. You know, you don't want to give, trust this guy to, to do anything, much less be a coach on your team. And he said, Tommy and I just looked at each other. You know, we, we just looked at each other. And, and uh, he, 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 said, uh, he said, when I was in the Super Bowl, when we won our first Super Bowl, as it happened against, against the, the, uh, uh, the Bengals, and he said, Brown, one of Brown's axioms was, use your trick play first. And he liked it. He had a particular affection for a, a, a trick play called the old triple pass. And so early in that Super Bowl, they run the triple pass. Well, Walsh, when he was the Bengals guy, Paul would say to him before the game, what's our trick play? You know, what's our trick play? So now, in the Super Bowl, they run the triple pass with Montana and complete a long pass that kind of starts to set the tone for the game. And Walsh said to me, I looked up at the top of Pontiac Stadium at the windows where I knew Brown was sitting behind there. Just for a second, I looked up, he said, and then I went on with the game. Yeah, it was a great, it was, it was a great experience being around Brown because he was, you know, he, he had been a... You know, when he came into the league with the with the Cleveland Browns, named for him. You know, when he they were in an, they were in an old league that failed. Yeah. And when he came over, you know, with them, 
you know, Otto Graham and that crowd, they played in 10 straight championship games. It's incredible. In the two, in the two leagues. And they won three, you know, they, they won the NFL title the first year they were in. and They were like a big underdog. They, were, they opened that season in Philadelphia against the two-time champion Eagles. Steve Van Buren, the running back, was their star. And just before they went out on the field, Brown cleared his throat, and all all those players every, nobody ever heard of, Marion Motley and Lou the Toe Groza, you know, and, and uh, mm. you know, all, all that wonderful crowd. Brown says, just think, in a minute you'll get to touch Steve Van Buren. <laughs> and, and he told me, he said, they almost took the door off the hinges. 35 to 10, Browns. Yeah, and any question of letting them into the NFL was ended that day, that's for sure. That's right. Wow. You've been with all the big names. You talk about him in the book. One of the biggest, maybe the biggest in the entire book, is Muhammad Ali. You called him a cruel fighter. What do you mean by cruel fighter? Well, it's a cruel game, you know. It's, it's, he knew all the dirty tricks of fighting, you know. He, he, he punished guys he didn't like. He carried them. You know, Joe Lewis put everybody out of their miseries. But Ali, he figured the people deserved a few rounds anyway. And he, you know, he, he was good at keeping the referee behind him. And, you know, he'd stick his fingers in, you know, Ernie Terrell's eyes, you know, and he'd just yell at him, what's my name? You know, because yeah. Terrell was still calling him Cassius Clay. But, it, but it, it, you're right that he, I had a particular affection for Ali. You know, I, I he always said the same thing when he saw me. How's Angie? I like her better than you. And he never met her. But I handed her the phone once when I was desperate to get off the line because the deadline was boring down. I went in another room, wrote a column, and an hour and a half later I came out and they were still talking. Uh, you know, I, I went to most of his big fights. You know, and, I, and he was sitting to me like at the, near the end at the Larry Holmes fight. He said, who are you picking? And I said... I'm picking the other guy, champ. And he said, you always wrong. You know? <laughs> and I said, I hope so. But, but uh, when I was really wrong was in Africa. And he came into the hacienda where the writers did all their typing. He could see a betting sheet on the wall, and I had Foreman and one. I thought, you know, Foreman was knocking guys out of the ring. You know? oh, I, yeah. was afraid, I was afraid for Ali. And uh, he said, come with me. And we went out into the dark. dark. It was like darker than half past midnight. We had to hold on to each other to find our way to the Congo River because it was so dark. So we got there, and he said, I'm going to tell you something. I don't want you ever to forget it. Black men scare white men more than black men scare black men. <laughs> and and, and uh, that was right. He knew we were, we were petrified of foreman. Yeah. So, but I said to him, I said, aren't you even a little afraid? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, I have to have my fear. I can't do without my fear, but only a very little. And I said, D Angelo Dundee says, you're, you're, uh, he's never seen you so uptight. And Ali said, my, he said, my, my entire destiny is at stake here. I had, a, I had a great feeling for him. He was the most compelling figure I'd ever uh, been around in sports and, and late late in his story when he was really he had really lost everything he had lost himself he lost even that great laugh he had and um, I was in a car with my friend Bill Knack a Sports Illustrated writer and, and 
Ali, believe it or not, Ali was driving. But Bill was trying to help. You know, he, he had his hand on the wheel, too. But but an old boxing writer named Bob Waters of Newsday had just died. And I knew Ali loved him because I can remember seeing Ali sneak up behind him and kiss him on the top of his pink head. Max says, Champ, do you, do you remember Bob Waters? And Ali said, in a voice, you know, like a guy with an artificial larynx, vaguely. And I said to him, at least you remember the word vaguely. <laughs> and he and he tried to laugh, you know. Wow. He 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 was he could make you cry. At least he could make me cry. It was a sad ending to an an absolutely incredible storybook career. Well, he he, he fought too long. He was in the eighty Olympics, and oh, excuse me, he was in the sixty Olympics, and in eighty he was still fighting, you know. And um, yeah, he he, he they, they, you know there were two alleys in my view. The first one was. They can't touch me. I'm so pretty. And the second one was, don't worry, I'm letting them do this. Interesting. You know, and the second, the second part went on too long. Well, when you think about George Foreman and how bitter he was at that time and so forth, and, and then all of a sudden he found religion or whatever, and I guess being off that time, he didn't take that beating. Actually, his second go-round was, was a positive thing. He won the championship back for a while, and made him a whole lot of money in uh, outside of the ring. Absolutely. In, in, in uh, cookers. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's unbelievable, isn't it? That's yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, yeah, he, he, of course, uh, I, I covered some of those fights. I, went, I got in an elevator with Foreman in Atlantic City when he had, had been beaten up by Holyfield. And, it, and his face was, like, full of doorknobs. You know, and it looked awful. And uh, and I said something to him like, I hope this is the last one, George. And he said, I hope so, too. The book is God's at Play, an eyewitness account of great moments in American sports. I can't tell you how much you got to go out and buy this. It's a great book. Uh, Tom, I guess you can get this everywhere now, right? Don't buy it. It's in the library. Read it for free. <laughs> now you want to buy it. I'm, I'm, an, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an old crack now. I, I've stopped writing for money. I only write for love. It's a, this, was a, this, yeah. know, this was something I did because I wanted to do it. And, uh, yeah, I always tell people, hell, it's, you know, it's free. Read it, read it in the library. I don't – but it's, you know, it's on sale on all the usual suspects, you know, Amazon and, and on down. I think you want to have it in your house. Actually, you want it in your own library, and then you can let people borrow your book. But you got to get. It. Hey, Tom, thanks a lot. I, I hope we can do this again. That was just fascinating. Well, I enjoyed it. We've got some exciting news coming soon about a new website for the show. But in the meantime, you can go to VegasNeverSleeps.com and check out the Sports Rock and Tour page. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thank you for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest price 
prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-296-1337. 800-296-1337. 800-296-1337. That's 800-296-1337. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Professional line not included. We are all in this together and we can get through this. Learn more at elementalresearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.